the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today I have uh, Sarah Nugent rejoining the podcast. This is your third time on the show, Sarah. Yes, it is. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely uh, glad to have you, especially on short notice this week. Absolutely, have always happy to be here. <laughs> so I've got theme music this time around. This will be my second episode with with a new theme going. Ah, oh, music make it, makes everything better. <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, I did kind of like the DIY aesthetic of like just or the like the lo-fi-ness of the podcast just being yeah. like, we just get on there on the mic and talk. That's it. Like no frills. Nice. But well, I was like, eh, it sounds on brand. So might as well <laughs> uh, give it a try. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what um, you've been volunteering. Yes. This yes. afternoon. Yes. Tell um, me a little bit about that. Um, so I uh, am connected with a local organization who goes into the local um, Travis County Jail, um, Travis County Correctional Facility, um, and we help register inmates, uh, those who are incarcerated, to vote. So um, each state has their own um, voter laws as to you know if you have a criminal record, who can and cannot register to vote. So. Um, within Texas, the, pretty much the rule is if you've had a felony conviction, if you were off paper, which means you've served your sentence, you've served parole, um, all the bells and whistles, everything has been served and done with if you're off paper, even if you're incarcerated for, um, a misdemeanor, um, then you can still register to vote. So that's what we do. Me and a group of volunteers, we go into a room and they'll go into different, um, cell blocks and... You know, if they want to participate, then on their free will, they're able to come in. Um, This is only my second time doing it, and it's just, it's pretty incredible. Um, I do a lot of self-education on incarceration in jails and just in mass mass incarceration in general. And it's a very different experience learning about it, seeing photos about it, listening to podcasts about it, engaging in... um, conversations with activists about it but actually being there and being feet away from these human beings who are just being treated so poorly is a completely different experience and it's one that I will never forget it's what I want to continue to to do this volunteer project but um yeah that's that's what I spent my Saturday doing that's awesome what's the response like like how many people are you seeing like what's the like what time, how long were you there? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so we have to have set um, a set number of hours that we go in. Pretty much we have an organizer who calls and uh, sets the time that we're going to be there. There's a process that you have to go through in order to be able to go into the jails at all. So um, you have to become a, for this particular project, a voter deputy registrar. 
uh, for Travis County. Um, or we have some other representatives from other counties as well, just in case those inmates could possibly be from um, other counties. Um, you also have to submit an application to um, a certain member of the an official at the city who reviews the application. It takes a couple of weeks to, you know, background checks, pretty much making sure that you're not going in there for nefarious reasons. So once you go through that process, we were there for two hours um, each time. It's usually from like 1230 to 230. Um, it's really however many we can get. If we have a large group, we'll try to split it up into different sections. Um, today was just seven of us, so um, we all, as a group, went to each section um, of the jail. And I think each time we're able to register around 40 to 50 people, um, depending on how many people are interested um, and decide to, to visit our room. So, yeah. So how, how many people would you say that you interfaced with today? Today, I would say maybe 15's on the high side. Um, the first time I ever did it, there was a lot of questions. Uh, I think I only did six, and this time was a little bit more comfortable and could answer their questions better. So, uh, yeah, I think I would say around 10 to 15 today. Nice. Yeah. And so the registration process, like, what what is that like? Is that a pretty involved not it so really it's just bringing the process to them so um, oh no i mean on in terms of like your the organization that you're working through yeah so they have a lot of um contacts and um um, relationships with those who work for the city um and like i said they kind of guide you through the application process you have to fill out I think it's like three or four pages, send it in. Um, there's a specific person who vets these applications, figures out whether if you're you know, a good person or not. Um, you know, the word good is kind of subjective, but um, yeah, they pretty much just figure out you're there for good, good intentions, and then they accept your application. You become um, a, VD, a registered you know, VDR, and then we go as a group. So yeah, it's it's... It has some involvement, but it's probably an easier process than what one would imagine. Right. And then you, so you also, but you, now that you've done this kind of registration, you can do, go to registration even outside of this. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So I specifically became a voter registrar um, to do this volunteer, but I can register anywhere in Travis County, really. So yeah, that's good. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, what else? Uh, what else has been going on? Have you been writing? Um, since you were doing, you had like your Medium account going there for mm-hmm. a while. Yeah. What's uh, What's going on in that realm for you? Um, not. I, I still write, not probably as much as I would like. Um, you know, Austin is an expensive city to live <laughs> in, so I now work two jobs, so that takes up a lot of my time. Um, I did write a piece, uh, may maybe a month or so ago, um, just about. Um, athletes specifically I think I write I like writing about uh, the athletic experience specifically college athletes just because that's a very unique experience Um, but yeah I I do probably just not as much as I would like what about politically is there anything like that's caught your attention recently or that you're have been maybe engaged with or just really maybe even in general yeah Um, I wouldn't I guess this would fall under the the political spectrum. Um, obviously, I think we're all 
really nervous slash excited slash terrified for next year's elections. And so I think that's always this like looming dark cloud <laughs> that we're just A dark waiting psychic cloud, for. Yes. Like Marion Williamson. Exa- oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Just, so that whole, that whole thing is coming up and I, everyone, any, you know, political podcast I listen to or any, any polls, it's right now still in the process. It's a little too early to tell, but we always, I mean, we have a huge, we still have a huge number of, of candidates and we have a couple that have started dropping off. And so, um, I think it's showing signs that we're getting into the nitty gritty of things, but it's still that section of it's a little too, too early to tell. Um, what I did want to mention, the New York Times released, um, have you ever heard of the 1619 Project? No, I'm not familiar at all. Yeah. Um, so Nicole Hannah-Jones um, and a number of other contributors for the New York Times, they released the 1619 Project. 1619 is the year um, that the first African slaves were brought to the shores of America at that time. And pretty much it's an analysis of how everything that America is, believes in, specifically our democracy, came from slavery and how us enslaving those Africans shaped. Um, one, of, one of the things that struck me um, recently was um, in one of the pieces it mentions the way that we measure productivity um, in business, a lot of it comes from how um, plantation owners would track how much cotton a certain uh, uh, each enslaved person would pick like per hour per day and those same metrics um, are the exact ways that pretty much they correlate with how modern business people track productivity Um, and I kind of thought about I've worked in customer service (laughs) before and had those same type of metrics and Pretty much, um, it's just a really wonderful analysis of how slavery really, slavery shaped everything that America is today, um, and how specifically um, black people and African American people, there would not be a democracy without them and their ad, and their advocacy and, um, yeah, them standing up for their, for their rights and their ideals, and it's, yeah, it's a really, really compelling, so... You should read it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely see that influence. I mean, directly so in the in the makeup of the electoral college itself. I think mm-hmm. was that was kind of the compromise to balance powers between the slaveholding states and the non-slaveholding states in the North, primarily. Yes, yes. So there's definitely those echoes. I think that's definitely an astute point to make that a lot of the legacy does rely on that uh, that terrible foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and in their, you know, Brian, Brian Stevenson with the Equal Justice Initiative, um, one of his famous quotes is, slavery was, has never been abolished. It um, has, it's only evolved, right? So it's evolved into Reconstruction. It evolved to Jim Crow laws. It evolved to mass incarceration. Um, so it's only turned into something else. It's never really gone away. And I think that's really compelling. And I I personally think that's absolutely the truth and is correct. Kind of to make the link between that and incarceration, um, not a lot of people know that when someone is incarcerated in a certain county or a certain congressional district, they their vote, they're, they're not counted in the county or the district where they live, where they come from. 
it's where the jail's located. So a podunk town in the middle of East Texas that has maybe a couple thousand residents, they'll add however many people is in that jail. And so that means that they have more people and they have more representation and they'll get X amount of you know, congressional um, seats based upon a population that's actually not even from there. They're just there because they're incarcerated. Right. And most of those people probably can't, or a decent percentage of those inmates probably can't vote as well. Yeah. Depending on the facility um, and and what level they hold. Um, But yeah, it's pretty, and it's, it's indicative of what the South used to do with counting the population of those enslaved yeah, towards like the three-fifths compromise. Okay. Exactly, exactly. What are uh, what about the rules for voting? Like, let's say if you are in jail mm-hmm. and it's election day, can like how does that work? Will they allow you to vote at all? So this is something I've never really thought about. You can imagine. Yeah. Um, so there there are efforts and there's grassroots efforts to bring the polling stations to. Um, um, to those who are incarcerated and bring them to the jails. So it really does require those organizations going to them um, to allow them to vote because a lot of times, um, as far as I'm as I know, I'm still learning about the process. Um, as far as I know, if they are incarcerated and they're not able to go to a polling station, then, they, they're unable they might be registered but they physically can't go to a polling station to vote so I think it it really does count on organizations bringing those resources to the jail and letting them vote there um, not entirely sure if that's a correct answer um, or exactly how that process works um, yeah because like I said I'm a little new to to this whole process Right on. Uh, yeah I'm just kind of curious too I wonder if they could like submit an absentee ballot or anything like that like a paper, like, you know what I mean? Mail in mm-hmm. a ballot somehow? I did the I did the absentee ballot when I went, um, I went to college in Alabama, so that, I did that. Um, I guess in a way that might work. That's a, actually a great question. I'm, I'm going to go find yeah, that take out. That, take yeah. that back to the Oregon Sea. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe ask. that's something, I feel like that would probably be more feasible than bringing polling equipment. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. The, the reliability on mail isn't the, like to the jail isn't the best in terms of it actually getting to them. So something that's really important is after they fill out the registration form, there's a receipt at the bottom and we tear it off and we tell them, hold on to this because, you know, um, I spoke to a number of inmates today who they lost their apartment before um, because they were incarcerated. They lost their place to live. And so as far as they know, they're going to live in Austin after they get released, but they really don't know where, um, where they're going to live. Um, I had, I had a, a guy I was talking to, he's like, my sister lives in Colleen, um, but I, I did work and live in Austin, but I'm just not sure where I'm going to end up at. Um, so I gave him a mail-in, um, a mail-in registration form. And so, you know, there's all sorts of, of situations like that where someone doesn't know where their permanent address is going to be. Nice. Well, um, if there's nothing else that kind of has been on the top of your mind, we do have a piece um, from Murray Bookchin. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> Worked my brain, for sure. So the, it's 
an incredibly short piece called On Remaking the American Left, which Remaking of the American Left is a title that that Bookchin is responding to an article by a gentleman, and I forget the name offhand, um, Aronowitz is the author's last name. I'm assuming he wrote the piece, Remaking of the American Left. But the reason I wanted to bring this or discuss this with you in particular was because Murray Bookchin is someone that is very much like it's a meme amongst the kind of like online left to if you have questions about anarchism in particular, Mm -hmm. Google Murray Bookchin. Like that's it's like a running you kind of like meme joke is Google Murray Bookchin. Gotcha. To give you that background, so well, I might have to follow. <laughs> you will. <laughs> you will have to Google Murray Bookchin after this. Um, Hopefully, I can spell that right. But yeah, it's I'll easy. Bookchin, literally. Oh Bookchin. gosh. Yeah. All right. Easy enough. <laughs> Super simple. Um, but yeah, this is I think interesting for me too because I've although I've I have Googled Murray Bookchin, I have never actually read a piece directly from Bookchin. I've, nice. you know, I've listened to podcasts, I've okay. read other people's commentary on Bookchin, but this is like the first time I've ever read anything directly that he's written. Okay. And Bookchin is, like I said, often cited uh, when it comes to anarchism, um, but what's kind of very cool about Bookchin in particular is that he has a very kind of distinctive American approach, or he often cites the sort of history of a more local individualist strain that kind of pervades like the American character at large, um, historically speaking, as this sort of like, you know, kind of Mm anti-authoritarian stance that is a little bit baked into the national character to some degree, right? But of course, Bookchin, he was a Marxist-Leninist as a youth and then became an anarchist later on. And then even beyond that kind of moved beyond anarchism into i don't know like libertarian municipalism yeah sort of so just a very kind of localized um governmental and economic structure where people in the local communities are making decisions versus outsourcing that to a a larger state government or you know what i mean it's more of like Mm -hmm. a federated system of smaller communities where the sort of political life isn't abstracted from the day-to-day. So people are discussing politics at dinner. They're discussing it in the town square Mm -hmm. at the library. Like, it's a much more involved form of a participatory society when it comes to politics. Gotcha. I, and I think we discussed this just a little bit before we started, how that is just not in any, at least that's not a part of my political um, existence. I I feel like I'm always, I'm annoying people when I talk <laughs> about it so much. I've definitely made people uncomfortable, but that's also been my goal. Um, and I've made that a point, but I understand that's not, um, unless you are, and I, I think we'll get into this later, unless you are a part of a marginalized community, um, if you're a person that lives with privilege, like you're able to kind of say, oh, I don't want to talk about politics. Um, right. It makes me uncomfortable. We don't talk about politics with that side of the family. Um, it's a lot of sectioning off of what you feel like you can and can't talk about, depending on who your audience is and where you're at. Right. 
And I think, so there's that component, but there's also the component of people don't feel like they are necessarily, um, like they have the agency really, or the knowledge base to participate in politics as well. Like that's kind of a common thing is, you know what I mean, that we see, which sort of in a way kind of makes sense in this like huge kind of all these different moving pieces yeah. When it comes to like the national or the, the federal government, or really even like the state government, really, I mean, in Texas, we've got what, like, right about 35 million in population. And so yeah. even the state government, though, like we're here in Austin, right? Like it's kind of pretty abstract. Yeah. I think that there's something to be said about the nationalization of politics in general. Nas- nationalization of news, there's definitely still local news outlets, but you hear plenty of local newspapers either completely shutting down or um, lessening the amount of times that they are distributed. Um, there's no weekly, excuse me, no daily newspaper anymore. It's weekly, there's monthly. I know Austin um, Community Impact newspaper, they're monthly. So, I, there, there is a degrading of that, and I think when we when someone thinks about politics, someone thinks about kind of the larger elections, like the presidential President, election. Right. That's what everyone focuses exactly. on primarily. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so when you think of something on such a large scale, it's really hard to a know how to participate really um, with anything past just voting or. Um, or, or having any type of acknowledgement of what you can do locally um, and having, yeah, just having any idea. It can seem really big and scary, I guess, is what I'm in short trying to say. Definitely. And although this isn't part of the piece itself, I do want to kind of maybe bring this up for you since you're not so much integrated with the kind of more like the socialist or the anarchist left. And one aspect that is that sort of the viewpoint that like the economic system is separate from politics or like it has like it doesn't interact with politics directly in any way i think is a big part of the the liberal order and when i say liberal order i don't mean what you typically think of when people are saying liberal as like that's often associated with like the democratic party right yes. or liberals right i'm thinking more so in the sort of philosophical context as opposed to like a socialist um i guess ideology rather mm-hmm. so in the in the more liberal um constitution of politics it's often like oh well the economic sphere doesn't really have any impact on like it's a kind of a it's kind of cordon way to not cordoned off but um what's the fucking word i'm thinking of um, <laughs> quarantine. It's oh, quarantined off, right? <laughs> as the separate thing that doesn't really have um, specific direct impacts on politics. And I think mm-hmm. that is one of the biggest failings of probably the liberal order when it comes to Republicans and Democrats mm-hmm. in the U.S. is like that's a separate thing that doesn't really have purchase when mm-hmm. it comes to politics. Like those two things aren't really measured together or there's no involvement but that's i think clearly not the case yeah i i it's a complete myth i think there are um i i don't want to necessarily say the entire democratic democratic party i think there are some current presidential candidates who have um ran before on a plant like uh, like a bernie sanders has ran on a platform of getting money out of politics and getting special interests out of 
um, special interests and lobbying. I think there is some awareness of the the power and the influence that big corporations have on our um, uh, elected officials more more of an influence than say their own constituents. So I think there's more of an awareness. What you were saying in terms of you know not just a an awareness, but really having an in-depth knowledge of, I think that's kind of where things get a little sticky um, of how, because that, that seems so big, right? Like, how am I supposed to fight against these big corporations? How am I supposed to fight against um, this millionaire who can just pour all of this money um, into an issue that, you know, I, I do or don't care about? I mean, it, it can really seem daunting. And I think the, the point of the piece that, that you had shown me was that really har- harnessing that community aspect and harnessing the local government aspect is um, really important and can be powerful when done in mass, but something that we've really um, gotten lost of. Um, at least that that's my opinion. Definitely. I think, too, though, this, this critique sort of extends even beyond that more obvious mm-hmm. thread of corporations and dark money and PACs and all of that kind of political likes out and out, like out front corruption or, you know, susceptibility to money. This is more so the critique that this sort of economic system is generating a culture. It's generating society. Like it's not separated from the ideological aspects of like what we are taught in terms of values or morality or Things okay. like that, um, in the sense of, let's say, someone that's wealthy is oftentimes like there's a morality given yes. to them. Like there's mm-hmm. that kind of relationship between, oh well, if you're rich, then they're like you must they be mu- good. Yes, they in must a sense. have done like, something. There's a moral good, right? Yes. Which is kind of a throwback to this older, like Calvinist sort of pr- Protestant history that the U.S. has been kind of built on, right? Yes. Um, there is such a campaign, um, and I will say specifically with um, Republicans, conservatives, who have done a really good job um, of demonizing the poor and making the effects of poverty the fault of the poor, when really it's the decisions yeah. of those millionaires, billionaires, um, that have caused such an inequality for the people to live in poverty. Um, so there's absolutely, I think the word I brought up earlier might apply like intersectionality. Um, it's not just one, they all, all of those issues influence one another. Um, and one doesn't necessarily exist. You can't look at one and not acknowledge the others. They all, um, they all influence one another. So, um, I think inequality in so many different fashions really truly shapes what America is. And like sometimes that's a really, it's not. It's a pill that I swallowed a long time ago, but mm-hmm. I'm. I really know that there are people who live um, in this country not realizing the effects of inequality. Yeah, and I think too. It, yeah, like you're saying too. It's the assumption that if you're poor, it's because you you did something wrong. You didn't follow yes. X Y Z. And anyone who was wealthy has obviously they've already done like the good things that you're supposed to do, right? Yes. I think, and and one of the biggest takeaways um, in my research of incarceration and those who go to jail, um, there's just there's just so much to unpack. Um, you know, wh- 
so much of our institutions are based upon the, the fundamental um, fundamentals of slavery, right? And so slavery shaped the way we think about punishment and good or bad. Um, and so when it evolves to mass incarceration, you have people who, you know, I don't ever want to take away from, from the actions, um, you know, that, that they, that those who are incarcerated did to, to be incarcerated. I don't want to take away from that. Um, but when I'm sitting next to a person helping to register the vote, there's just a person, they're a man or woman. Um, I've only specifically worked with men. I haven't gone to um, a women's portion yet, but it's just a man and he's just next to me and I don't know his story. Um, but so much of what we're doing surrounding crime is really redefining what crime is. And there is so much criminalization of poverty and poverty. When you are living to survive, there are so many things that you are willing to do to survive. And so this notion of, oh, I would never do that, or how could this po- this person possibly make that decision? And it's like, if you have not lived in that type of poverty, and it's not just poverty, there's like addiction, abuse. I mean, there's so many things that affect humans. And, and I think that's one thing in my work, in my life, that I really want to bring to the table <clears throat> is showing that those who are incarcerated, they are, they are no better and, and no worse. Like you are them. We're just people. Um, and they've just gotten enthralled in the trenches and in the system. So, okay, I'll get off. It's <laughs> all good. Hey, that's where we're here for. Um, but we will jump a little bit more directly into the actual piece itself where, um, Bookshin sort of starts out, he's making a distinction between the sort of ideologically committed left and those um, that are more historically focused on a struggle within a narrower context, maybe like agrarian movements like the Grange from the kind of early 20th century. Uh, at least I'm maybe I'm making an assumption there. Um, so Bookchin contrasts this with the contemporary non-ideological left, primar- um, which is, well, primarily non-ideological left that is more so your... LGBT community, environmentalist um, sort of identity groups such as that, but he's very astute in pointing out that the more ideologically focused left shouldn't ignore the material context and the popularity of those types of movements um, because he's sort of arguing this is the shift in the material conditions, the material base of society itself. So the way that economics and culture, which aren't separate, are influencing mm-hmm. the progression of society itself. Absolutely. And so you have a more, when I say ideological left, I mean so socialists of different strains, whether they be anarchists, communists, socialists, etc., are all, um, in particular in the, in the historical context he's speaking of, have a primarily class-focused analysis. Okay. And so they see the primary tension in society between those who own the means of production, the capitalist class, the 1%, if you will, between those folks and the people that are actually laboring and producing the value, producing the goods themselves, like on the ground, like the actual working people. That's the that's the primary focus of historically at least socialists, right? Okay. Are they is 
so I, I admittedly some of that was a little over my head. Um, I love well, learning. Ask, ask questions. Yeah. Please. So um, I guess we had briefly discussed this when I guess is the piece trying to draw a connection or just or to say that the economic impacts, whether it be inequality, classism, all of those things are not in a separate bucket from social movements like civil rights, racism, LGBTQ communities, um, fighting for their equal rights. Is the argument being made that they aren't two separate buckets, social movements, classism, or is it saying, you know, is it saying there is actually, there's a connection and we can't have one without the other? Hmm. Is that a clear question? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel like you're asking the same question with both with both questions and i think that the piece is going towards yes like you have to expand your analysis to include these different identities um and issues like environmentalism right which is Mm -hmm. not typically something that socialism like Karl marx didn't really write about environmentalism or at least not that i'm aware of okay or not in the context or as evolved as we would like now right like that's Mm -hmm. a relatively newer development okay so i it kind of sounds like there just needs to be an expansion that we've only talked about these the these ideas in terms of class and economics and we need to incorporate these other things into that same same line of thinking it also sounds like maybe some new language needs to because Right now, I I have these ideas. It's kind of hard to come up with the words to put them together. So it's almost like the piece is, is advocating for creating a new language about that. Like we have these fundamentals and we have these ideals and we have these ideas. Um, but here's how we've been describing and talking about them for so long. We need to now incorporate new found ways to talk about how we can incorporate all of these social movements into that. Is that? Does it- <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I think he's getting it towards like we want to integrate environmentalism. We want to integrate LGBTQ rights or mm-hmm. racial liberation, etc. Like we want to integrate that also into so that we can have a broader movement. Just more. It sounds like instead of ignoring more, those things yeah. and just focusing on class alone, which I think, mm-hmm. I, at least for me, like I'm more of an anarchist. I'm not specifically. A Marxist. So while I do like, I take class analysis in, and I understand the political economy of Marx. It's not my primary focus. I think there are issues outside of class that influence. Gotcha. You know, like there's different oppressions. Yes. Yes. That exist outside of directly class. Like you can be wealthy. Like you can be wealthy and be LGBTQ, or you can be, you know, another marginalized identity and still experience like a racial hierarchy or a sexual hierarchy or, you know, the patriarchy, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if you're a powerful woman, like, I mean, Hillary Clinton, for example, wealthy woman, powerful woman, still can experience sexism. Yep. So there's that, at there's that hierarchy element there, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're, so that, can you can see like through her like that's a different way of like it's almost like looking at a diamond right like the different facets gotcha. of how these things can be impacted yeah yep i yeah i i grew up probably higher middle class 
Um, I am a white woman. There's so much privilege afforded to me because of my parents' education and their where they come and their income income bracket, tax bracket, um, and all of these things that I'm afforded. Yet, because I'm a woman, there are things that I go through in, in terms of sexism. Okay. I think I got it. <laughs> I think I got it. Thanks for explaining that. That oh, makes yeah. sense. Um, and I'll read directly from Bookchin. Okay. Wow. So first time I'm reading directly from Bookchin <laughs> oh my on the podcast. So this is a, this is a big moment. Um, so he's talking about Aronitz's article specifically and the distinction between the ideological left of socialists communists, libertarians of various sorts, and the popular left, which in past decades consisted of movements for redistributive justice, by which I take Aronowitz to mean the traditional labor, agrarian, and unemployed movements of the 1930s and earlier periods. While these movements certainly linger on the varying levels of consciousness and degrees of organization, I feel we cannot give enough emphasis today to radical environmentalists, feminists, gays, ethnic groups, countercultural folk, and peace activists. I do not simply I do not believe the latter simply supplement the popular left of traditional socialism, and I am sure that Aronowitz would agree with my formulation. What I do think, however, is that many leftists today fail to recognize that the old quote unquote popular left and the new one reflect basically changing social contexts of a historical nature that have not received sufficient emphasis among socialists and anarchists. Change that, that, should be, that should profoundly affect our strategies for the left as a whole. So I think gotcha. we so already saying, sort of summed are, up. Yeah, like, summed y'all up. are forgetting some stuff to include in your, in your movement, y'all. <laughs> That's what I heard. Like, hey, there's all this stuff that y'all forgot about, and we need to start remembering and incorporating them. Yeah, because I think the what he's getting to too is like the historical development of capitalism and society has reached a point where you really need to embrace these other movements as part of a left movement. Like you can't ignore environmentalism, you can't ignore LGBTQ, you can't ignore sexism, etc. Right? Gotcha. Yeah. In yeah. transplanting these struggles to America, the Immigrant popular left tended to parallel a separate, more domestic domestic American radicalism largely rooted in the libertarian, decentralist, and amorphously individualistic traditions of New England, Puritanism, and frontier ideologies. American radicalism of past eras, in effect, was quixotically schizophrenic in its ideals and traditions marked by the internal division between Deb's Socialist Party and the IWW tried ephemerally to heal a U- heal a European socialism that had its roots roots in the struggle with quasi-feudal contexts as well as with capitalist ones, and an American populism that had its roots as much in the libertarian context of the American Revolution and frontier as in the emerging industrial world that followed the Civil War. Radicals are now faced with the compelling fact that the old imperial, oh, the old immigrant rather, socialists and anarchists are gone. They live among us as nostalgic and aging figures of the past. Their European traditions and ideals remain more as memories than as visions of the future. Well, did anyone else's head spin? Because <laughs> mine did. And that was the second time I, I read that or, or heard that. But 
Okay. That was a good job. Okay, so what he's what he's saying here is okay, early twentieth century, right? Think about the immigrants that are coming to this country, even the late eighteen hundreds, right? At that time, you had a different makeup of immigration, and in particular, I'm thinking off the top of my head. Um, so there's a pretty strong anarchist contingent, um, particularly in a place like Italy, and so you'll okay. remember from history like Sacco and Vanzetti, the two anarchists from the Italian anarchists that were executed. Mm-hmm. So he, what he's talking about is kind of that immigrant history, like a lot of the socialists, like there were people from Europe that came to America with this idea of socialism that mm-hmm. is a lot more, I think, integrated and acknowledged and like legitimate in Europe than it is in the U.S. Yeah. So he's saying this old class of Europeans that brought socialist ideas over from Europe are now sort of dying out and gotcha so they're all there are are sort of their ghosts that are sort of haunting in a sense um the left mm-hmm. today okay so rather than kind of like pushing forward like a new like they're gone like that time has passed the circumstances in America are have evolved and changed and so we need to integrate these other fights for justice and mm-hmm. equality by integrating these different ideas rather than this old, more, I guess, it's kind of a simpler or more binary mm-hmm. relationship of struggle between classes. Mm-hmm. So just a, a call for evolution and change to fit the current context. Exactly. Because exactly. America of that time does not look like the America now. And so what I, th- what I think is... <laughs> Go for it. What I think is great about Bookchin in particular that I think you might, or is, makes him really interesting to me, is he is very much steeped in the history of, like, he's saying, like, he's, he's a leftist, he's a communist in a... In a way, he's saying, though, the history of the U.S. is already has this very, like, libertarian, there's this libertarian strain from before the revolution, before, like, the United States was a thing, is particularly in a place like New England, you had town halls and you had a more, like, grassroots community-based government or sense of politics that most more people were participating in and there was more of a consensus amongst the people obviously not mm-hmm. everyone had the ability to participate probably right but yeah. though like it was broader at that point in a sense from a like more there was more autonomy at the local level i think mm-hmm. because there wasn't a strong federal government in like washington dc so things were a mo- lot more yeah. localized and that's what bookchin really likes i mean eventually he kind of evolved into that more of the idea of a libertarian municip- municipalism or communitarianism yeah i gotcha and so he talks about that decentralized individualistic tradition of american radicalism radicalism in the context of the early 20th century discussing how the iww attempted to synthesize those contradictions between ideology and individualist American t- context within that sort of historical idea of like Calvinism and that strong focus on the individual. 
I think this is very salient in the context of New England, as I kind of mentioned, as opposed to like the West, I think, doesn't have that town hall kind of history the way that New England does. Mm-hmm. In a place like Vermont, you know, New Hampshire, like you, you kind of like, you can even see, like I even see in my head like these little mm-hmm. cottages where people go to have a town hall, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like in the West and Texas, that's not really so much a thing. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe um, it was through like, I mean, in, I'm trying to think in the West you had probably churches were like the most community based. I, I would definitely organizations. say so. Yeah, I would definitely say. Um, churches, I mean, entire communities were founded. Like, you'd build a church, and then the community would grow and live around said church. Um, I think it's evolved. I am not a historian, nor am I an expert on any of this. Um, I, I guess, just to make this about me, <laughs> I, 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 I guess regardless of what name is put on it, um, I am for and support good government. Um, I think good government is possible, but it requires kind of this local engagement and this local enthusiasm that this um, that this person's talking about. So that really resonated with me. Um, kind of all of those. All of those big words um, a little, went a little over my head. Some some of those ideologies I'm not um, totally familiar with. More familiar with what they mean in a certain context, but um, this type of analysis, like I said, kind of went over my head. But um, I I really am in support of good government and that it can function well. Um, so like, can can you think of the last time? Because um, Way earlier in in the episode, you were talking about, you know, people aren't aware of the accessibility that their local officials are. They just think that these, like the mayor, like there's no way it could get in touch with the mayor. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you can just email the guy. (laughs) You can show up to city council and get on a mic and sign up to speak. Um, You know, like in your own personal life, when was the last time that you participated in what you would consider like just a local activist something like it could be a march it could be do you remember the last time yeah it was uh, a few months ago maybe there was a gathering at the capitol steps for it was really to protest it was like a we did like a march around the capitol area to protest the um the camps at the border oh okay oh wow yeah that's a whole Oof, that's a whole other thing. Okay, um, well, that's great. And I, I I, think we are of that type to where that might be like, oh, we did something yesterday or a few months ago. Um, I think there really are people, like if I asked, I sat down and said, you know, when was the last time you engaged? When was the last time you talked to your grandpa about politics? When was the last time you did any of this? And I think it would, the time frames would be longer um, than we might expect so yeah reading this the kind of the end of the piece really wrapped it up for me when it just really talked about the importance of of local government and engagement um i really think we've gotten away from having and i don't ever want to say like civility politics that is not what i'm about um you can be loud and proud (laughs) and strong about what you believe in um 
and, and speaking the truth to powers is extremely important. But I think we have gotten away from being able to um, talk, just even just talking about current events and just knowing all, knowing what's going on in your community um, is something that I think we've we've gotten away from for sure. So that's yeah, <laughs> that's what I got. So Bookchin goes on a little bit to talk about this utopian vision of the American dream, the image of the United States as a quote-unquote new Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lingering on as a continuing national ideology of minimal government, individual freedom, and decentralized ideas and localist claims. Um, this utopianism of the American project prevents the emergence of a more mass socio-political movement, Libertarian municipalism is a term that sort of encompasses Bookchin's political project. He's astute to point out this local character is something that the left will will ignore at its own peril. Um, he uses the example of, uh, of Burlington, Vermont. He indicates it could operate well in, as well in cities like New York City or San Francisco, but the political history of these places really isn't place isn't. I think doesn't have the same purchase in a place like Texas. Mm -hmm. But I want to read uh, directly from the text here. Put bluntly, our bourgeois democracy is no longer compatible with a cybernetic, robotic, highly centralized and rationalized society. It is within the force field of, utop of a utopian tradition that has given America its very identity and the brute needs of a corporate society that threatens to subvert it, that the American left can hope to extend itself from the ideological to the popular realm, from a largely sectarian to a social movement. The immediate locus of such a popular realm lies in the neighborhood and the municipality. Call it communitarian socialism, libertarian municipalism, or for that matter, a new populism, a word we have no reason whatsoever to fear. I submit that a radical theory that fails to analyze this local sphere to explore its social potentialities will remain a fairly narrow political theory committed to partiness and parliamentarianism. In northern Vermont, where I live, it takes the form of the town meeting, which has gained new vitality as a result of its moral authority in launching the nuclear freeze movement. In larger cities or towns, it may take the form of citizen assemblies, such as those in Burlington, Vermont, where Neighborhood justice, neighborhood assemblies rather, have been legally established in the city's six wards, a network that could work just as well or exist as just as well in cities as large as New York and San Francisco. Whatever the form may be and however much municipal forms may succeed in confederating on a regional and hopefully a national scale, they are as American as apple pie. They significantly intensify the force held of political life that places Americans' corporate future at odds with the country's most lofty traditional ideals. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Cooper's audiobook. You can purchase <laughs> it on. <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. Um, wow. That's a lot to unpack. So, yeah, it's again, it's, he's talking about, okay, we have these historical political context of the sort of the new england town hall let's embrace that history let's return to a more grassroots community-based sort of decision making rather than this giant 
federal government that we really don't have a lot of say within. I gotcha. And also, like, the divor- again, the divorcing of day-to-day life from politics, like, there really isn't a distinction. So he's talking about bringing... I mean, I think maybe maybe I should hold off on this. <laughs> but I think later he does bring up this idea of, like, we need to bring, like, everyone's day-to-day experience to politics and, like, make that connection and that integration. Mm-hmm. Because what are people worried about? Like, oh, well, you know, things like health things, insurance or, yes. things you that know. Things that directly affect yes, them. Yes, exactly. Like, that is also politics. That is not outside of politics. You have the responsibility and you have the agency to participate in your own mm-hmm. outcomes. Like you shouldn't outsource your decision making or your responsibility to decide how society functions to someone else that's thousands of miles away. Like we should take back our freedom, take back our decision making, and put that at the local community where everyone can have a voice. Gotcha. So instead of relying on your elected official, um, like you are the brains, you are the decision maker. Um, pretty much it's taking back. Uh, I think the argument is, is we have the power. We aren't harnessing it or using it. It's take in. Yeah, we've relinquished our power. Yes. To the federal government because it's easy and that's sort of capitalism has made us lazy in that way. It's like you just sort of react. You don't. I use Google Home to turn off my lights. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I definitely, I see that. And I think something I thought of when when you were reading that is, um, you know, he compares it to what his hometown does in just community meetings and how, you know, encouraging people to have ideas about what would work for their own communities, whether it looks like a big cookout where we all just, whether it's just a community roundtable where it looks like something um, like just a neighborhood get together, I guess just coming up with what works for your community, um, is one way to harness that power. Yeah, absolutely. You got it. It's that, it's that simple. Oh my gosh, I got it. <laughs> what? Um, yeah, I, I think that's really compelling. Um, I just to not, not to go off on a huge tangent, but I think that's something that activist community community in terms of, um, when it comes to teaching about uh, police brutality or um, racism and inequality and and just the criminal justice sphere is kind of debunking the same myth that you're talking about where people think they're not smart enough to understand these big um, like police contracts or the the city budget and you know where they're going to give money where they just think of these huge documents and uh, this bureaucracy that they just can't understand when really um, it's up to the activist community to make, um, it's up to the city and, and those local governments to make that information accessible. Um, and it's up to us to, and, and those who want to take that on, to make it not only ex- accessible, but also understandable and in a way that people can understand. But in order to do that, we have to be talking about it to begin with. There has to be a safe space to, to learn and to know and understand when you really can Google is amazing. I mean, you really can access all this information. Your local news reporter um, is an email away. I mean, all of these elected officials, this information really isn't that hard to get your hands on. It's really, um, it's it's not as hard as people think. It it requires effort. It requires engagement. I'm not going to say it's it's uh, necessarily easy, 
Um, but part of that movement is all of this myth busting that you really are, you are capable, you are smart enough. Um, you don't have to be an elected official to have um, the power. Something that I, I learned recently about empowerment, um, kind of the idea is like, if you have all this power, you're giving it to other people. But really what true empowerment is, is to help the other person know that that, their, that power is already theirs. They have it already. It's teaching people how to use it and harness the power that they already possess towards whatever they care about. And that has always resonated with me. And so I, all of this is what I was thinking about while you were, while you were reading the piece. So Bookchin, he's talking about municipalizing politics, right? But he also mentions here um, municipalizing economics. So not only like bringing down that wall between politics and economics and realizing that they are really one and the same and there's no divergence there. And also like extending that local autonomy to what we're producing in society. And I'll read here directly from the text as well. The By the same token, a populist vision of libertarian municipalism has its own economic perspective. As I have contended in my writings over the past few years, the municipalization of the economy in contrast to its nationalization. Conceptually, this can be drawn from Paul Bruce and historically from the Paris Commune, an upsurge we readily celebrate, but which we have generally explored in a somewhat wrong-headed way. Taken by itself, to be sure, the municipalization of the economy can be quite a vacuous demand, as so many publicly owned utilities so clearly reveal. If it does not assert, it, assert the control of citizen assemblies over economic life. Okay. So in layman's terms, <laughs> um, yeah, that part was a little, uh, that was, that part was a little harder for me to understand. Um, is it just breaking? So I understand the breaking down of barriers between economics and politics and realizing that they are the same. There really isn't a distinction. Um, but beyond that, what does that mean? So this is... What this is doing too, it's like extending the, because, okay, right now as society is structured, how much say-so do you have in your workplace as far as what is getting done, what is getting accomplished? Like, do you have any autonomy? Mm -hmm. Do you vote? Do you have a really, like, you're dictated to from a corporate office, right? Like, effectively, like okay. the corporate, yeah. the corporate structure or hierarchy is driving all of these decisions on all of the other, and like finally that is reaching you at the very like base level of a production mm-hmm. of whatever for whatever you're doing. Okay. So that's what it's saying is like, let's also extend this decision making, this autonomy, this democracy towards like what is produced economically. I got gotcha. so that you have. Not only do you have like this sort of quarantine section of politics where you can have a voice even within a democracy, right? Like it's never put on the – like capitalism isn't put on the ballot. You don't vote for it. 
it's assumed that you will participate, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's none of that structure is ever threatened within like our current economic system. Okay. Like no one's ever running on, okay, well, let's turn over the decision making to the workers mm-hmm. in there's society. An assumption that my manager will make all of the decisions and will tell me what my workflow is and will tell me what right. I'm producing. So this is saying, this is flipping that on its head and saying, no, we as at the community level, we will decide democratically what we're going to do. And we're not going to rely on some arbitrary hierarchy that's predicated on a market or anything like that. Like we as the local people will decide our own what people do ultimately and how they spend their time when it comes to producing things. Because like so many things that we're doing aren't really benefiting anyone but the owning class, the shareholding class, right? Whereas like people are... People don't have clean water. They don't have health insurance. They don't have a place to live. Like those are the things that are really important that we're not focusing on. We're focusing mm -hmm. on generating profit for a very small percentage of our society and culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes me think of, you know, what is the responsibility of those who own companies? What's the responsibility for them to... um, to owe and give their employees um, benefits and benefits in whatever that looks like. Um, that's really interesting. I haven't had enough time to chew on that, I think, to have anything super intelligent to say here, but I. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm just going to walk into work. Just... I'm going to walk into work <laughs> and just be like, <clears throat> I'm not posting these posts today. <laughs> I'm going to make the workflow for the entire floor (laughs) today. Just see what my manager does. If I'm fired by next episode, I'll let you know. (laughs) But okay. Um, So that's a, that's a good, like, I guess, philosophical idea. Um, Does this, does this writer have any actual implications for what that looks like in practice? Maybe not in this piece, but. I don't know if, I don't, th- I mean, this piece is too short to delve into that, but I believe that if you were to Google Murray Bookchin, you could probably find out, um, he's written a number of work. he's got a pretty deep bibliography. You could probably draw some um, okay. more specific elements of this libertarian communalism, or what is libertarian municipalism, rather. I gotcha. Um, I think that um, goes into what the piece was saying earlier. I guess that that makes sense now, that connection of um, communities who, you know, 1800s, you know, whatever era we're going back to, you know, these community meetings, they were deciding, hey, here's what, like, crops we're going to make this year. Here's the um, goods that we're going to make and sell. Um, And that was a part of it, too. So it's not only having the power to make the decisions for the community, but it's also having the power to make decisions on what is going to be produced produced um and and it's coming directly from the people who are producing it not just right okay and so i mean i don't know that historically that was really the case like i don't know that the workers had the autonomy to make those decisions in the context of the u.s but he's using that same sort of that model very loosely to say this is how decisions can be made 
but also like this is another good point like breaking down that wall between um like what can be included in democracy and what is freedom like the economics are like off limits in you know what i mean other than okay like uh we'll raise the minimum wage or something like that but like at at the end of the day you're doing what someone in a very far away is telling you to do ultimately Mm -hmm. that is authoritarian that is not freedom you have no agency to decide like no matter what and no matter which company you're going to work for Mm -hmm. that relationship fundamentally remains the same I see. Is you have no, like, you're just told what to do and you can choose between being told what to do by this company or that company, but never are you banding together with the other folks that you're working with and deciding we're going to produce this today or we're going to do this or that. Mm -hmm. And that is where, that's like the whole gist of, I think, for, for left or leftism broadly and when I say that, I mean so more so like the socialist, communist left of we mm-hmm. want economic freedom, not just this like certain quarantine zone where we have the ability like to freedom. decide. Yeah, socially, like, oh, yeah, you can mm-hmm. do whatever. But this part of society, oh, no, you don't have any say so mm-hmm. unless you happen to be, you know, a billionaire, for I example. See. Yeah. Um, so what does that look like Um so we are in a capitalist structure. So say those workers got together and was like, we don't want to work for these companies anymore, but we want to either A, make our own. I mean, to me, that structure sounds like entrepreneurship. Um, I I fully acknowledge that the, that the system kind of repeats itself. Like if the Facebook is a group of people that got together in a garage, I don't really know if that's how they started. But whoever, you know, these giant corporations had to start somewhere. So what... Um, that's what I think of is what that, I guess I, I understand it as an idea. I guess I'm kind of searching for what that looks like practically because a group of pe- of laborers around the same job, job title, making the same coming together and saying, we want to control this or that, or we want to, we want to have a say in what we're producing. I feel like that almost sounds like a group of buddies got together and they went and started their own company and what that how does that relate to entrepreneurship? Does that, you see what I'm... Yeah, Um, so the distinction here is that, I mean, I think, yes, like within the capitalist system, you have co-ops and things like that that can exist within the capitalist structure. But what really what socialism is about is about changing your fundamental relationship vis-a-vis power itself um, and democratizing that so breaking down what's driving society in terms of what's getting produced is a profit motive okay so all the decisions are geared are made from that vantage point from that paradigm so let me give you an example that's very salient for a city like austin okay so you have the very way that we transport ourselves to work is influenced by the economic system it is influenced by what not what is best for the people but what is best for profit in a large sense so everyone having an individual car 
and tra traveling to work every morning and sitting in traffic is more profitable for oil companies, car companies, all like think of the entire ecosystem of production that goes into producing an automobile and a car and getting you to work on a day-to-day -day basis. All of that is driven by the profit motive as opposed to, let's say we had trains or we had a more like a subway or something that is more geared towards getting people to mm -hmm. work and functioning at a, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that's, that's a very like basic example of like a really high level kind of this like socialist idea is changing the very structure of the way that what gets produced is, is driven itself and placing that in the hands of the people themselves so that we can decide as a group what we should do rather than be told what to do. So it's kind of deciding what the motivation is because it sounds like what the motivation is is profit and not what is best for the people that it's supposed to be right. serving. And I mean, think about this environmentally, et cetera, like getting mm -hmm. off of fossil fuels. Well, um, the, it doesn't work in a capitalist context because what the is... The end goal is saving the planet and not... And not profit right exactly so the mechanisms and two like whenever you have a market okay what is cheapest is so you have this contradiction right like what is the cheapest fuel is always the worst for the environment you know what i mean like mm -hmm. burning coal yeah. horrible for the environment cheapest there's more poor poor folks in the world that mm -hmm. have to burn coal because it's cheap. So you start to see like how there's a conflict between what's between what society needs to exist and prolong itself and mm -hmm. profit. Like those things are in conflict okay. often, almost all the time. So to kind of put it all, the, the argument is not only do communities need to be more engaged and have these conversations, but they need to figure out what their motivations are. Not just motivations, but like what their needs are for their specific community and how that's going to be done. And yes. that's what politics is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I did it. <laughs> I passed the test. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, bring, bringing all of that stuff, like re, like descaling society down from this gigantic thing where it's just a mass and the prevailing ideology or system goes on un unchanged and saying well let's strip let's strip back these layers of decision making and let's bring this down to a more focused region where like people can actually have autonomy and make decisions and not be just dictated to by profit centers or by like the capitalists that have a totally different interests mm -hmm. set of interests than we do as the worker. Like though there's an there's a fundamental antagonism between those two groups of people. Yeah. And that's like there's a quote from Marx that's like the history of the world is the history of class struggle. So the struggle between the workers who don't possess mm -hmm. the power and the capital in society and the people that do possess those those things. Okay. And that whole, all of that has a relationship to politics. Yes. Because it is. Are the things that we fight for and struggle with and these movements stem from all of these fundamental things of 
there is a structure where someone else gets to determine the goal, then everyone else around it scrambles to figure out how to meet said goal. Yes. And the argument is to completely flip the and that entire, just flip it around yes. to where it is the community who determines what the goal is and the decisions, um, pretty much just stripping profit as not the goal that no, that nobody wants, um, unless you're the 1%. But if you're a part of that community, you get to term, get to determine what the goal is, the means and everything that, that, um, dare I say it trickles down from that. Right. Anytime yeah. We're, say, we're eliminating, say, we're in eliminating trickle down and we're it's going to be like tr- there is no trickle there is like abundance there's one <laughs> i i just so yeah i just use the phrase for but i hate using it's like i can't say this trumps that anymore i can't <laughs> say that anymore i can't say trickle down without just getting a bad taste in my mouth so um okay the wow. phrase the phrase that um bookchin like to use is fecundity what <laughs> That's a new I'm, one. I'm I'm going to Google this for you so that I don't screw this up on the podcast. Go I'm looking it. up the definition of fecundity. Okay. Um, so it's Cue the, Jeopardy music. <laughs> it's the ability to produce an abundance of offspring or new growth, fertility. The uh, Also the ability to produce many new ideas. Okay. For example, the immense fecundity of his imagination made a profound impact on European literature. So new ideas. So I guess when you are so focused on surviving, it's really hard. It's it's harder to come up with yes. just groundbreaking ideas. And what makes it even more incredible is it's most of it's it's people who experience this marginalization that come up with the best ideas. Oh and yeah, and that's what's beautiful about it. Um, very true. I do think that definitely a lot of times the most radical ideas are from the outside, the people that are outside the mm-hmm. the consensus or the norm because they're seeing the world, they're seeing the problems from a totally different standpoint or perspective. They live it. Yes, yeah. that too. Yeah, and I mean, who better to decide like, okay, how we should get our water or we should get to work? Like, why should we have that driven by corporations? In, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. why should Ford Motor Company and Shell Oil and companies like that decide how we transport ourselves? Fuck them. What yes. do we need them for? They need us. We are the workers. We have the power. We stop working for them and we take the power back. Like, that is the basis of like that little germ of an idea. That is, like, what socialism really is. Gotcha. So... One, I, that little I snippet, I needed to give you like a bullhorn and we, and then two, I think the name of this episode should be, uh, Cooper che- teaches Sarah socialism. No, no, no. <laughs> the um, title that's of, very helpful. The title of this episode will be Ogle Murray Bookchin oh, as a play on Google. <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah. I'm, gonna I'm dead serious. That's. I've, oh, already really? just, I've already decided. Oh, great. All right. So <laughs> works for me. That sounds good. I'm, well, I'm going to have to actually, I'm going to have to I will to brush show up on you. Um, there's actually videos of, of Bookchin too. And I think there's even some, because like he lived, him and Bernie Sanders lived in Burlington, Vermont at the mm-hmm. same time. 
what a coincidence <laughs> that is not surprising to me right. at all. And there's um, somewhere on YouTube, you would have to like sift through the archives, but you can find Book Chin like talking shit about Bernie. It's mm. pretty funny. Mm. I mean, I did send you that article about like Book Chin talking, yeah. going in on Bernie a little bit, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> I think there's some very valid things to critique, but okay. Is there anything else from that from that piece that you pulled? Yeah, there's a, just a tiny yeah. little bit left yeah, go uh, for that it. I wanted to go over, and then we'll wrap up. Um, so, Bookchin's talking here about setting, a, um, creating a set of countercultural institutions that are decentralized and operating under a confederalist model. He advocates for this because he sees it as the means to reach the working class where they are, and with what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. That's not so abstracted from their daily lives the way that like the democratic party or any kind of larger like national organization even at the state level is like there's such a huge like gulf between you and that organization right and so i want to read a little bit to the text that goes to this point we have produced the contours of a counterculture not only in lifestyle but in ecology feminism gay rights and lesbian rights movements and the claims of ethnic identity. What we must now help the American people create, in some respects, revive, are the decentralized and confederal counter-institutions that will provide this counterculture with political tangibility. Within this communitarian and populist framework, we can reach working people no less than the middle-class strata as people, parents, children, neighbors, Individuals who are concerned with their environment, peace issues, health problems, and the like that concern all citizens as human beings, we can reach them at a point in their lifeways where their humanity and their universality transcend more narrow class being. So the one word in my head while you were reading it was storytelling. Like that, that's what I got from it. Like we need to tell people's stories and they need to be yeah we need to tell people stories um and because that's really how politics should function is we should talk about politics in the context of people's experiences yes yes absolutely experiences hell yeah Um, i got it i love that i think (laughs) that made besides the other thing that i sort of got i i feel like i just really i loved that that last um part i almost forgot about it but Storytelling, um, just I, I'm a little bit a little bit biased. Just as a writer, I love storytelling. I love, I mean, that's what activism is about: is living your truth and and telling the stories of of others that you're that you're passionate about. So, all about it. I'm all about it. I want to reread this again, just because this is, I think, this last little couple of sentences is just so great. Within this communitarian and populist framework, we can reach working people no less than the middle class strata as people, parents, children, neighbors, individuals who are concerned with their environment, peace issues, health problems, and the like that concerned all citizens as human beings. We can reach them at the point in their lifeways where their humanity and their universality transcend their more narrow class being. Absolutely. And this goes Mic drop. Sorry. <laughs> right. This goes too to that. So he's in that last couple of words in their more narrow class being. So 
that's what I was talking about earlier with this ideological, ideologically aligned left that was historically in the early 20th century like that predominantly focused on class antagonisms. Bookchin is saying, yes, this we acknowledge this, but we need to focus on people's com- at the community level. There's actually and human beings speak behind to the, yes, what you're saying. Speak to them behind these concerns that they have. I mean, healthcare, peace, mm-hmm. all of these things that affect them. Allow them to to participate in how those things are addressed and like air their concerns outside of just like this very more like binary element of class. Like, hit, talk to people where they are. Like, whether you're you know, like everyone has a lot of these sort of basic concerns about life, right? Yeah. Food, shelter, water, healthcare. Mm-hmm. Not dying in a in yeah. a nuclear war or in a, some kind of hellscape environmental collapse. Yes. Yeah. Um. I think absolutely. I just one hundred percent. I think that's. I mean, that's really how you reach people. That's that's the purpose of of culture and art and theater is really com- connecting with the human spirit. And when you're able to connect with the human spirit and realize and acknowledge your own humanity, you're able to look at another person. Because I think that's sometimes what we do. We look at another person and we see all these labels, whether it be stereotypes, class, you know, whatever you're trying to section this person into. Um, and you're able to see, when you when you can see your own humanity, you can recognize the humanity in others. And this relates a little bit when people look at people who are incarcerated and they're like they're just bad people and it's like look at them see their humanity and see how this is a lot more you are a lot more complicated they are a lot we are humans are complicated and we are usually just products of that of that complication and things my actually the last writing piece I wrote is that when we look at athletes we kind of only see what they're able to do physically like you can throw a football really well um and we only care what you do for me in our fa- in my fantasy draft instead of looking <laughs> at them as a full dynamic dynamic human being who has multiple things to offer the world anyway so i yeah woot all about <laughs> it um so this will be the last little bit here um bookchin wraps up the essay with a series of questions um, about the future for American politics. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of these remain, these questions remains, not that they just remain salient, like they're important questions, but I think so many of them kind of remain unanswered in our in our current moment. So one cannot help but ask, how will an American radical movement that seeks to encompass these growing strata institutionally articulate their aspirations and from what political traditions will it draw its inspiration as a party that will try to unite a waning labor movement with ecology peace countercultural gay lesbian and ethnic groups will it try to find its counter institutions in the american tradition of localism community autonomy decentralism and citizens assemblies and initiative groups that confederated regionally and nationally will form a counterpower to the growing corporate and central power. 
Will it draw its inspiration from the American libertarian populism that is purged off its churlish egoism, free enterprise spirit, and proprietarianism, just as the anarchists of Spain purged the Spanish villages of Andalusia and Aragon of the trammels of parochialism and Catholicism while preserving their spirit of mutual aid and collectivism? These questions, I feel, cannot be excluded from the discourse of the American left in trying to find a new agenda for the era that lies beyond, or lies ahead, and Stanley Aronowitz is to be complimented for opening the arena for such a discourse amongst serious socialists. End of the piece. There's lots of isms. Lots of isms. Um, so it is, I guess it sounds like it just wraps up with we're gonna try. We're gonna see how this actually works out and how this is applied, um, and in what form we're gonna see it manifest. Is, yeah, I think so. The piece is wrapping up by kind of doing a rhetorical move, a rhetorical question of how will the left constitute itself? What is this? How do we move forward? And do we embrace my vision, which is, and I'm speaking from the book chin like as if I'm Murray, and saying, is it going to be this more libertarian community-focused or that's going to integrate things like um, ethnic minorities and the environment, LGBTQ rights? Like, is that going to be integrated into this broader conception of the left somehow? Or like that, so it's asking that. This is saying, okay, left, here's the current moment. How are, how are you going to move forward and to sort of get the left to think like how do they move forward how are we going to choose to evolve yes okay so the entire <laughs> got it okay wow that is a way to say that <laughs> that's such a big question that is such a big question how how are all of those movements what is it going to look like how is it going to evolve what does that mean? Mm, it's so big. <laughs> That's such a big question. And I think too, so a lot of people when they think about communism or socialism are thinking like automatically, oh, it's the government does everything or the government decides. Well, no, there are some strains that believe in like a central, powerful, like central government, right? But... Murray Bookchin is from a tradition that's saying, no, we want more local autonomy. We want more local decision-making. We want to sort of latch upon, latch upon this individualist strain within American, like the American identity, like that notion of like people doing for themselves, but like apply that to the community. Like take it to where the individuals within society are realizing, okay, we're not in competition with one another we should we are in cooperation with one another and like okay. that's what capitalism is doing is creating this antagonism between you and i okay over resources i gotcha would this at all relate to like and i'm gonna make it super binary and i'm gonna make it just kind of reduce it down to like republican democrat so a lot of if you listen to you know just traditional politics, typically it's Republicans will always win 
the culture war, you know, whatever that means. Um, and that Democrats always have a, a difficult time. Um, there's so many facets and there's so many layers. Um, there's several different types of Democrats, like the one of the organizations that I work for. Um, we do a lot of work with the Texas legislature. And you'd be surprised how many Democrats are really bad for criminal justice reform because, um, you know, that's that's the work that the organization does. Um, and so and that's not what I would originally think about or kind of my assumption. And so kind of what I'm hearing and what that explanation is, is that there's so many different faces and facets and layers. And is it are we going to be trivial and, and focus on which one we're going to choose or is it let's just all contribute and all come together and and do it together (laughs) does does that because what I see specifically kind of what I'm mirroring is with the Democratic Party since they have kind of trouble having an identity in that way because there's so many facets to it um they have trouble getting voters and, and and moving forward and kind of defining themselves is that kind of what the call for is here is that we need to not worry about that we need to just define ourselves in this collectiveness and evolution of of moving forward well i think there's definitely a strong collective element to it but i would say that whenever you're talking about republicans and democrats especially in the context of the u.s is no matter what neither um None of the people within those two parties are really challenging the orthodoxy of capitalism itself on a meaningful stage. Like maybe like Bernie Sanders is probably the most engaged with even bringing up remotely like in that direction. But no one is fundamentally talking about, oh, we're going to on the campaign campaign trail going, I hate capitalism. Yeah, (laughs) like. Um, I forget, like, you hear fucking uh, Nancy Pelosi, oh, oh, no, we're capitalists, and that's it. Well, uh, so what choice do we really have in voting for, okay, these people that are clearly, like, towards the end of, like, fascism, or these people who are, like, for at least a little less exploitative of of capitalism, right? So that's kind of the choice that we're held to in this country. So yeah, just because someone's a Democrat, for sure, I'm not, I'm actually not surprised to hear that mm-hmm. there would be people that, because their their relation to, or their conception of how America functions or how things should work is based on like not questioning capitalism and keeping economics and politics separate and that serves to really benefit the status quo. Okay. From a political perspective, from a power perspective, from an economic might perspective. Okay. And so that's why you hear like in the democratic debates, well, are you against, are you for outlawing uh, private health insurance? Well, yes, absolutely. Why the fuck do we need private health insurance? Like the whole idea of, insurance being a profit motivated business in the first place is very counterintuitive yes it's a goes again like the contradiction between that and what the whole point of healthcare (laughs) is yes right absolutely even more so like 
what's kind of really funny is that people like what is the the whole point of insurance is to distribute risk because like the larger the pool you have of people in an insurance policy the less likely like or the like if someone files a claim right so if you have one person file a claim and the pool is a thousand versus you have one person file a claim and the pool is a million so that risk is a lot higher in that smaller pool of individuals for somebody to get sick and then Mm -hmm. extrapolate that out right so that's what people are saying with like the benefit of medicare for all is instead of having like all these different carved up um, groups of people that have coverage whenever every whenever the risk is distributed across the entire country then that is bringing down the costs overall yes. for everyone else right okay. but like it's based on what what is like a risk pool like what is insurance it's a group of like, people yeah it's like you're lives. already yeah <laughs> but it's also like i'm already paying into basically health insurance is like a tax mm-hmm. effectively like doesn't yeah. make any difference to me whether i'm paying aetna or whether i'm paying some type of like federally administrated program like it's still $150 out of my check, right? Yeah. I don't care who the fuck it goes to. I would much rather that money be going to not pay for like some stupid executive mm-hmm. that can fly to, you know, whatever Bali on the, you know what I mean? On the weekends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and go fuck get that. Botox. Right. Or- yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. That just is kind of just to illustrate where profit motive and the health of society where those like that relationship is oftentimes in clashes whereas capitalism is always going to say well no we will it's better if we it has to be unequal otherwise it's you're not free well you're you know if you're at the bottom of the socioeconomic hierarchy uh it's not very fucking free yeah sure if you're at the top if you're jeff bezos yeah you got a lot of freedom yeah being (laughs) yeah um being poor is expensive. Yeah, it exactly. All expensive. of the rules and everything is situated so that it's more costly. Like mistakes that you make are always harder on the on the poor, whereas the rich get the benefit of like government payouts. Not only that, but think about things like compounding interest or whatever. Like just because, like if you have a billion dollars in the bank, just in a savings account, and you're getting three percent interest. How much money is that just to have your money sitting there versus if you're one of us and you've got a thousand dollars in your bank account and you have Ooh, a three percent interest nice. rate, right? Yeah. I haven't seen I don't even have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, you don't even have, the, I don't even have a thousand dollars in my bank account. You don't I have a thousand dollars in your bank account. charged my credit card. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I would like a comma on my, on my paycheck. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. Or we can restructure society so that mm-hmm. a bunch of shit isn't getting wasted and people are getting like the basic things that they need to live. Yeah. And aren't making them happy either. Like think about all that, you know. Mm-hmm. You can have an Alexa, you can have an iPhone, you can have a computer, a TV, blah blah like you can have all this shit. You can have a nice car but still feel miserable. So what's the point? of us continuing that like it doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. 
you've put so much so many <laughs> nuggets in my brain yeah um i mean think about yeah. it like think about it in terms of resources like whenever you go down like the uh the mouth care section of the grocery store right think about how many types of different toothpaste there are toothbrushes mouthwashes um fucking whatever like there's a million different brands there's a million different like sub segmented types of toothpaste even within one brand like how much effort is getting wasted on producing the same dumb shit like you know what i mean deodorant like extrapolate that to freaking anything and so much energy is just getting wasted on like all Mm -hmm. this like a shiny package for toothpaste so that you'll buy it like Mm-hmm. Think about that on a mass scale after, for decades, for a hundred years. And then mm-hmm. you begin to see why we're in this environmental crisis and mm-hmm. just using resources for what? Like the whole thing that's driving society is the profit motive. Yeah. So of course these stupid, like wasteful things are going to be. End up in all of our landfills. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because the goal is profit. Yes. So new name for the podcast. <laughs> new name for the podcast is the goal is profit. Um, yeah. I, so this entire uh, episode has just been um, me learning, which is always a fun time. I always enjoy that. Um, so does that? Re- so I guess that relates with because um, something that is um, something that's preached a lot that I hear a lot is, is the usefulness of having competition in a market and how that drives. But what it sounds like is having a different philosophy about that competition, about none of that matters. Like all, like the end result is you have someone making a product and we have the actual, excuse me, someone is making a profit. And then we have all these products that serve such a short term need that's and definitely a part lo- of it. And a long-term cost in terms. And I think maybe it's only recently that we're really incorporating environmental impact as a cost. Yes. Um, and that's a huge yes. Um, so what this is referred to as is um, externalities. So corporations, um, I mean, maybe the clearest example of this functioning is like an oil company and I'm thinking about like the Deepwater Horizon well, right? So it's like, yeah, the oil company, they extract oil from the earth, etc. Whenever there's a huge um, problem like this, that the destructive elements of that oil spill are like those costs are immense. Yet these companies are a, or even even beyond, let's say there's not an oil spill, just the pollution generated by the fossil fuel industry or cars, right? Like that alone, well, the companies aren't really paying for that. They're sort of like, they're getting a free ride in a sense. Mm-hmm. They're getting this They're getting this profit, but not all the price are getting assessed. Like they're getting off kind of scot-free with their profit without any of this Addition, like they're not getting charged for the damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they're companies like that continue to fight against regulation, um, or don't receive any type of any type of punishment. So, yeah, I guess all of it, that's because, like in capitalism, 
all of the power and decision making is tied to having 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 money having money to run a campaign getting your name out there getting well known etc cetera, etc cetera, getting your campaign funded it's all a circular that's what capitalism cannot accommodate for is greed it can't like yes they, that's like the running theme for or you know rebuttal you always hear well people are greedy well if people are greedy why the fuck would you encourage it yeah <laughs> like or encourage a system that propagates that that, in, unfettered. It, that incentivizes greed like mm-hmm. that's what you're doing like why would you incentivize people to behave in bad ways <laughs> like it, it makes mm-hmm. no sense right mm-hmm. so hashtag <laughs> oh man what did you just say like greed is i don't know you said something smart i'll figure it out and i was going to turn it into a hashtag um wow because i don't know that like people are not i don't know are people greedy like what is greed without the outside of the context of capitalism without the out of the context of competition with other people you know what i mean like what is the good of like luxury items like you know what i mean Mm -hmm. only in the context of like this paradigm of us being in competition over everything does it make sense to consume Mm -hmm. dumb shit (laughs) like because i i would say fundamentally that the consumption comes from um like a human you compare yourself to other people and you want to impress and if someone it's you know, if someone has a nicer car than yours, then you feel more off. I know I feel even some sort of external pressure. I rent. Um, I have friends that are already buying homes and I'm absolutely happy for them. But there is something inside me that hates that they're like this extra step in the economic ladder that I just have not reached yet. And for me personally, it's still far off in the process. It's not something that is um, achievable for me. Um, so I don't know, like when does just kind of basic survival of you just having your own, the resources to survive and live, um, or is that like, I'm thinking of not, not like yoga, but just these spiritual practices where you learn to not be greedy. Like you learn to, to live and love and appreciate the things that you have and the things that serve you wellness all those sorts of things when does your basic necessities turn into greed or is greed just inherent and it's always there and it's just about controlling it or is cap i mean i would say that capitalism is teaching you through all of it like it's it's teaching you all of this like all of that shit is embedded in everything it permeates all of our society from every aspect of it so again like we started out remember we think opened up the podcast i was talking about rich people have the certain moral goodness equivocated with them and poor people don't right so like that is a fundamental character of within that capitalism is teaching us oh the wealthy are good they're virtuous and poor people are not so mm-hmm. there's a million, million little ways where that is slipping into how you're taught to function or construct your reality or view reality. All of that, that those 
economic productive forces that you don't think are influencing your day-to-day decision-making or anything or your ideology, like those, yes, it's a very subtle, it's all obscured. It's obscured by money. It's obscured by layers and layers of abstraction from you as, as the worker. And that's why socialists mm-hmm. want to fucking upend the system <laughs> and make it work for everyone as opposed to making it work for a small contingent of people that are rewarded simply by the virtue of having more than everyone else. Yeah. That last sentence sounded like a Bernie campaign slogan <laughs> on one of his emails. Um, yeah, that's, wow. I feel like we, I feel like we could go pretty, I feel like this entire podcast is Cooper talks for like 10, excuse me, two minutes. And I'm just like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, that's a lot to think about. And I, you know, I'm over here with the good government can be good. Um, so I don't think I've ever kind of traveled in these more, um, philosophical realms. Um, I think even in previous podcasts, I've talked about, I function with, here's the current system. What can I do to change and do? Um, I don't think I've spent enough time in that kind of higher level philosophical yeah. space. Um, but I, I, it's useful and I can see how I absolutely see how that's useful. Yeah. Cause I think really, when you really look at it, you have to change like the systems themselves are like there's a logic to them there is a logic that capitalism follows right like there's a pathway ultimately it's driven by profit like so that's what its logic is built on um and so when it comes to the government and capitalism there is a symbiotic relationship like they don't always like may like on there may be specific issues where the government and the corporate structure are in conflict right but overall the general thrust of them is to work in concert with one another and so that means that the system of capitalism gets perpetuated whereas maybe some individual company become uh, experiences the ire of the federal government in the u.s or whatever but at the end of the day the fundamental system itself isn't changed the fundamental relationships the exploitative relationships, the waste, the all of that that is built into capitalism is never challenged. And so to really, if you really want to change things, you have to fundamentally alter the basis of society. Whoa. <laughs> so we are back to um, the fundamental difference. Cooper wants to blow shit up, and I want to stay and try to you know fix all the pieces after he's blown it up i mean you're but that's right though i mean if you like we're not taught that to question a lot of that you know what i mean Mm -hmm. uh, we're taught okay you know vote for the good person vote for this the -hmm. problem is that good people like institutions will shape people Mm -hmm. like whenever you get into power, it affects you. Mm-hmm. It changes your perspective. It changes all of these things. There is a pressure. There's a logic that the institutions themselves have. So you have to fundamentally alter that base logic before you can really change those outcomes. Mm-hmm. Have you ever, I'm sure you've thought about this before, um, what 
an American, because I always think about just the the American Revolutionary War, like what that must have been like. That's a bourgeois revolution, though. Ah, well. <laughs> how, however you take it, what what something like that would look like now? Like, how would that, you know, how would that manifest? If you want to blow shit up, if you want to change the how the fundamental structures are, you know, how does that, what does that look like? Does that look like, let's go grab our muskets and... <laughs> um, you know, I obviously am not in, in support of that method, but you know, I guess that's all. That's always my question with anything. Love these ideas. What does it actually look like in practice? Is that something that you've, that you've ever thought about? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that it's pretty clear that the ruling class, like capitalism is not going to give up its acquiesce its power without a fight of some kind although i'm less i'm very cynical in my outlook that i don't think that it's possible at this point at least to carry out some type of armed revolution successfully against the united states but i do think that the foundations are being shaken by the internet in particular and decentralizing things and creating a lot more of this um, actually retreating from this mass kind of culture. So I think that there will be more space for these things to happen in the future as the nation state is going to wane in its ability. Like there's, you're either going to have, that's why I think you see the rise of fascism is the these large-scale nation-states as they exist are gri- tightening their grip on the power that they have because it is like the internet and this distri- distributed technology fundamentally challenges that central authority it's almost impossible for you to control society the way that you once could mm-hmm. through very like you know what i mean like a king right the king had an army if you challenge the king the king sends his army um, power is a lot more distributed in society now. So that type of top-down power structure isn't as successful mm-hmm. or as effective, rather. Yeah, you it's mentioned not- the Internet, mm-hmm. and I think the Internet has done some really powerful things. Um, it's obviously changed the landscape of human existence um, and how we're able to connect and share ideas and information Um, You mentioned fascism. I think the internet is a double-edged sword in a lot of ways where it's able to provide organizers with this unprecedented platform before to to get and bring people together almost to a fault to where (laughs) um, the the echo is almost too big sometimes and there's there's so much information that organizing is difficult. Um, That's kind of a whole other topic. But um, what do you see as the role of of like of the internet with fascism and and sharing giving a platform for this type of ideology and hate um and like kind of where that where that fits into the picture oh this is definitely too much to get into for this episode yeah but i would say if you're curious about this one of my favorite thinkers on this exact topic well not so much directly fascism but in terms of how information technology and information 
and communication and symbols and signs and language are affecting our society. Jean Baudrillard, French theorist, is he understood this shit like 30 years ago. And so I would so got recommend people to Google. recommend looking up Baudrillard. Okay. But I mean, we're almost to two hours. I don't want to take up too much more time. No, I mean, I, I always have a great time. But yeah, we um, I got dinner. I <laughs> right? gotta go eat. <laughs> yeah, same. I haven't eaten anything yet. So once again, Sarah Nugent, if you have any, uh, you want to share your Medium account or social media, anything like that, please yeah, feel free. Um, oh my gosh, what are even my handles? Um, so if you are on Medium.com, um, just search Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Nugent, um, N-U-G-E-N-T. Um, on Twitter, I am um, I my maiden name was Hay H A Y, so it's Sarah Hay, and then in capital letters USA zero two on Twitter. Um, my Instagram is Sarah, and then Hay H E Y underscore H A Y. So Sarah Hay Hay. All of those platforms connect with one another. If you find one, there's a connection to all the rest of them. Um, so. Yeah, you know, that actually should. I really need to make my handles less confusing. <laughs> I really, there needs to be a quicker way to do that. Um, so, yeah, if you have um, any questions, you can direct message me. I think there's a way on Medium that you can message or comment. Um, yeah, connect with me. I'd love, I love talking to people, sharing stories and ideas. So, um, but yeah, thank you for having me. This is always, I always learn so much. Absolutely. Thanks again on short notice. I'll throw links up in the show notes, but this will be podcast, Care of Cooper Cherry signing off, and then we'll have a little theme music roll us out. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is podcast. One state of things, two of violence without object. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in block work or